0: Patrick we are so excited to have you on here can you tell us about yourself and what your course has been
1: yeah thank you thank you Carly for uh, inviting me to your podcast I'm very excited to be your guest here and I think it's great that you reached out to me because I feel like the lone voice with what we are doing here and I haven't found anybody else that's even coming close to what we are doing and finally somebody's reaching out that's doing similar things to what we are doing. And it's really great talking to somebody that's like-minded. But uh, to answer your question, telling you a little bit about myself, look, I worked in ICU critical care for over 20 years. I started out first in 1999 in Germany, which is where I'm from originally, did my nurse training there, started in ICU there. And then after a couple of years in ICU, I became part of a startup company in Germany. And we were the first ones in Munich at the time, launching intensive care at home services. We were basically the first ones taking ventilated patients home with the tracheostomy, weaning, end of life, anything that you could think of really when it comes to ventilation and tracheostomy in a home care environment. So we were real pioneers then. And you know, after a couple of years doing that, I then eventually went to the UK, worked in ICU there, Did my critical care training in the UK and then eventually came to Australia in 2005, again, working in ICU. And with my experience in Germany, whether I was working in the UK or in Australia, I thought, well, why is there no intensive care at home? (laughs) I I was just gobsmacked really by seeing all these long-term ventilated patients in ICU and wondering, well, why can't they go home here? You know, what's the what, what are the obstacles? You know, but, you know, and eventually I did start the same here in Australia, launched it in about 2012. The door certainly didn't open quickly. It was sort of a a very long, drawn out process. You know, as you know, the industry is very conservative. Nobody wants change. Very hard, which is then why I eventually came up with the intensive care hotline, because I couldn't get the intensive care at home off the ground. And I thought to myself, "Hmm, what else do I need to offer to raise awareness? to change the paradigm, to change the thinking. And that's when I came up with, okay, well, I've got to educate families in ICU the minute they enter ICU, which is why I came up with the intensive care hotline, you know? And again, after having worked in ICU for 20 years, I thought I had a lot to offer, you know? I'm not a yeah. doctor, but after being at the bedside for 20 years and having managed ICU, I was also a nurse manager in ICU for over five years. You know, after having seen everything i believe well i thought i had seen everything but i changed that point of view when covid hit because i wasn't in icu when covid hit you know we are running intensive care at home now successfully so i'm way too busy to even think about what's happening in icu but you know i had i had thought to myself yeah i've seen it all in icu but no that i wasn't correct there because i wasn't in icu when covid hit
0: <laughs> has covid impacted how many patients are needing continued tracheostomy care
1: i would argue yes I would argue yes, especially with the hotline, with the intensive care hotline, the number of phone calls we've had since COVID it has gone through the roof. And, the, you know, and, and I know that one of your questions later down the line is, you know, is sedation impacting on having more and more tracheostomies? And I do believe, especially with COVID, patients going into ICU with ARDS, ARDS, getting proned increases the need for sedation what I've, from what I've seen. And therefore, the longer someone is sedated and deconditioned, I believe the bigger the risk they end up with a tracheostomy.
0: That's so interesting to have your perspective starting in the 90s, because that is when we were really heavy on the benzodiazepines and yep. just combining all the possible sedations at once and complete immobility. And so it was really common to be in this situation, right? And so yep. you watched, you probably saw some sort of, shift, a little bit of transformation in the ICU world throughout the decades. And here you are getting these calls. Does the care that patients are receiving with COVID sound like a time warp has happened and we're back. Yes.
1: Oh, absolutely. And again, you know, like I said, I haven't worked in ICU probably for a couple of years, even when, when we were starting out with intensive care at home, even as we were getting very busy, I still did a little bit of work in ICU, but not for the last couple of years. And like you said, yes, practices have changed. And I do believe that there has been a time when, you know, sedation has been reduced and maybe the indications for tracheostomies were getting less, but I do believe with COVID, and and it sounds to me like you've been in the midst of it, you know, with especially what I've seen now with arts and most patients being prone when they're in arts. I do remember starting out in ICU in the early days, a lot of patients with arts being prone and bucket loads of benzos, morphine, fentanyl, bucket loads, and a lot of patients ending up with a trach then.
0: Mm. Because back then, Being able to care for ARDS patients was new, right? To have patients on a ventilator that long was new. And I'm sure incredibly intimidating. And so you didn't dare move them. Nope. And even though back in 2007, a study came out showing it was safe and feasible to mobilize and walk patients that are in acute respiratory failure, here we are in 2021. We have gone back to what you started with back in the 90s, even though we know now. Unlike what you guys, where you guys were at in the 90s, we now know that benzodiazepines can lead to mortality, that it's lethal, but we're back to doing it. And so here you are running your own business. You're getting calls from family members asking, what do I do now that my loved one is going to be ventilator dependent? They're wanting to send them to a facility or you're consulting with people in different countries, correct? Or All, over the, all over the world, all over the
1: world. Where are the calls from? Predominantly from the US and Canada, but that is just, and and the UK, but that is just a a case of volume. You know, I mean, you've got, I don't know, 400 million people in the US. Here in Australia, we've got 25 million people. So the UK has 50 or 60 million people. So it's just a case of volume. You know, I get calls, we get calls here from Australia too, but proportionally way more calls from the US. But I also think, It's part of the issue in the U.S. is that there are LTACs, right? So people in the U.S. are really at crossroads when their loved ones have a trach because they realize if they're doing their research, okay, if I consent to a trach, my loved one will end up in LTAC. And then they find, you know, they're doing their research about LTAC and they find all these negative reviews online. They don't need to go to intensive care hotline to find out about the reviews of an LTAC. So they realize, okay, well, my loved one needs a trach. Then they go to LTAC. The, re, the reviews are really negative. What do I do? And in the future, I know I can send them to you because you have an alternative for this.
0: Well, ideally, if if a loved one were to call me when their their loved one is being admitted to the ICU, my advice would be: don't let them sedate them right away. Keep them awake and moving and active. And so your calls are coming when they're already at that crossroad, when they've already probably spent weeks on the ventilator and they're already so deconditioned, they're in a tough spot.
1: Well, most calls are coming too late.
0: And you've seen tracheostomies of all kinds, right? I know that neuro is a hard exception. You've had brain injuries, trauma. That is its own animal. But as far as respiratory failure, what do you see as being the main cause of needing a tracheostomy? And what is the course like after that? Once they've been prone, paralyzed, deeply yeah. sedated for so yeah. long, what yeah. happens? Great, then?
1: great question. Great question. The, the main indication for a tracheostomy from my end is really too much sedation, deconditioning. And what I tell families is this, and this is the question that I'm asking them, have you ruled out... Or have you checked? No, no. Have you checked that the intensive care team has done everything beyond the shadow of a doubt to avoid the tracheostomy and get your loved one off the ventilator and the breathing tube? That is the most important question that I ask families. And they often don't have the answer because they don't know what they don't know. And I say to them, can't hear you. Can't hear you. Can't can't hear you.
0: (laughs) Sorry, I turned my mic off in case I have kids running around maybe the ICU team isn't even aware of how to do everything possible to prevent a tracheostomy. I know that it could be deeply ingrained in their cultures that if someone is going to be on a ventilator for a while, they're automatically going to in, end up with a trach and peg because they don't know how to rehabilitate them or how to preserve their strength, right? So how, how can a team educate the family when they themselves don't even know?
1: Exactly. And also, the biggest, one, one another big challenge that I see is the paradigm in ICU, whether it's doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, okay, you've got two or three options. Either recover and go to step down, hospital, ward, whatever, either die or go to LTAC. It's a very limited paradigm. And that's the paradigm they're operating in without looking at, okay, what else do we need to do to improve things i do believe people in icu are more and more complacent i'm a bit old school of course you know i mean i started in the 90s i'm very much old school mobilization you know yeah i'm very much old school you know and then i hear when i talk to families no physical therapy for the first three weeks and i just go like how is that even possible
0: If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. When Patrick, during COVID, let's see, I did a survey on Instagram and about 40% of the responders said that physical and occupational therapy were removed from the ICUs when COVID hit. It just is so counterintuitive. Counterintuitive it's for me when you've got this pandemic with acute respiratory failure that's when you need to bulk up your physical therapist that's how you get people out of the icu and yet we did the exact opposite and then you're getting the call saying now we're stuck and you're you're coming from different countries where they didn't have LTACs. but here in the us we do and so i think that complacency comes from we save the organs. We get through the critical phase and then we ship them out. Not my patient, not my problem. LTAC can deal with it. And I don't think that comes from a malicious uh, place, Mm -hmm. but it comes from oblivion. They don't have to face the mess that they've made, but you did in your career back in the nineties. There were, there were no LTACs. So if you let them decondition, you're the one trying to haul their flaccid bodies out of bed and get them back to breathing on their own. But we don't have to do yeah. that here. No,
1: no. Uh, I, I do like you said, it's not coming from a malicious place because as we all know, ICUs are busy and just running an ICU day by day is just a, a challenging task in and of itself. You know, I would not blame anyone in ICU, but where I believe ICUs are falling down, they're so busy managing their day-to-day business, you know, they're not looking outside of, you know, like you said for lack of a better term, or oh, they're not looking outside of the mess they made. Now who's picking up the pieces?
0: Critical care is such a maze, right? You have so many things going on, so many pieces to put together. But in any kind of maze, like a corn maze, you, you'll have towers, like lookout towers, right? Someone has to be out there looking at the end from the beginning, but we're failing to do that. We just are trying to get through our shift, through that moment, and we just, we've gotten lost. And so people are calling you and what are you advising them and what do you, what kind of resources do you provide them? Yeah.
1: yeah. Look, I, I tell you what we do. We have in the meantime now probably hundreds or thousands of case studies on our website. When we publish what we talk to people about, you know, we record some of the recordings and get them transcribed, you know, so there's really thousands of case studies now on our website. If someone wants free advice, they can just listen, read, To read the transcripts or they can listen to the videos, you know, or listen to the podcast. But I, I can tell you, people, families in ICU come with four main problems, four main problems. Number one, not their loved ones is not, their loved ones are not waking up after an induced coma, what should I do? That's number one. Number two is trach or no trach, right? Number three is end-of-life situations or what I refer to as perceived or real end-of-life situations. You know, they might say, hey, my." they told me tomorrow at one o'clock they want to stop life support for my mum or for my dad. What should I do? My question to them is, well, is it a real end-of-life situation or a perceived end-of-life situation? In my mind, a real end-of-life situation is, well, there's nothing you can do to save someone's life. OK. A perceived end-of-life situation is, well, does the ICU team think it's best for a patient to pass away because they think they have no quality of life or whatever the reasons are? Or what's your point of view? Would you take your loved one home on a ventilator, for example? You know, that's not for me to judge. That's, I do believe there is a difference between a real and a perceived end-of-life situation.
0: And it's so difficult because every area geographically has different resources available. So if I was in that situation granted I would be throwing a fit and wouldn't let my loved one be in a medically induced coma for weeks but LTAX here it's at least like one nurse to 20 patients
1: <laughs> Yep yep So
0: how different is the care at home and how does that change outcomes do they have yep. a better chance of surviving when they come home yep. like in Australia when you provide yep. that care at home How is that rehabilitation different and how is their quality of life different? Because that would change for me, that would change the conversation. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It it does change the conversation. So, quality of life. Okay. Let's just take a couple. Let's just look at the pediatric space in particular, but I can come to the adult space as well. We have a lot of pediatric clients in the home, whether they're toddlers, teenagers, all ages really. So let's take a toddler or a teenager being stuck in ICU long-term or... Let's take them home with twenty-four hours critical care nursing, and get them back to school. Get them back to school or to kindy. Do I do I need to say more about quality of life?
0: The outcomes of patients in critical care, and so I've always wondered if the family was really involved, that they were actually home and they were in their own environment. How much would that help delirium and their recovery and their motivation? We just heard a story in the last episode from Luis where patient was maxed out on all their ventilator settings. They thought that they were dying. It was with COVID. So they allowed the family to come in. The next day, he was nearly extubated. I mean, he was on his way to recovery. And he said, once he could talk, that he needed them there. I don't know how to logically explain that. But how much of a difference does that make if someone's so deconditioned, hypoactive delirium to be in their home in their own setting? What do you see?
1: What do I see? A massive improvement in quality of life, a massive improvement in you know people have can stop going to icu i mean just the whole picture changes immediately you know families are at home their cli- their loved ones are at home you know it, the quality of life is is so much better in in a home care environment you know i mean it's and but on top of that it also helps hospitals i mean critical care beds are in high demand an icu bed whether it's here in Australia or in the US, with my research, costs five to six thousand dollars per bed day. You can do intensive care at home, roughly for half of the cost, right? So it's a win-win all around. It's a win-win wow. all around, and 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 you free up not only the cost, you free up a critical care bed that can be used for the next patient that needs a critical care bed. Especially now with COVID, you know, a service like intensive care at home just highlighted. Well, we're taking patients out of ICU. We're keeping ICU beds empty. Again, COVID just highlighted what needs to happen in the critical care environment
0: anyway, from our perspective. It exposed so many things. And I saw on Twitter, especially when New York was in their surge or towards the end of their surge, and they're talking amongst themselves saying, okay, so we have some survivors, but where do we send them?
1: Exactly. Rehabilitation services are maxed
0: out. There's nowhere to put them, but they're still dependent on the ventilator because they were deeply sedated and weren't moved. Where do we send them? And I think it was a huge and is a huge burden on our rehabilitation services. But in LTEX, you have physical therapists, occupational therapists, techs, aides, people that it takes a lot of hands to get an adult newborn up. So when they can barely hold their own head up, let alone breathe on their own it takes a lot of manpower to rehabilitate them. So how does that work at home?
1: Oh yeah, that's a good question, yeah. So look, we, we do work with physical therapists, we do work with occupational therapists. There's often also a second person there like an aide, like a support worker or a disability support worker that assists the nurse with mobilization, with you know, hygiene and so forth. And also if, if they're going out, you know, going to school, there's probably a second person there as well.
0: And for adults, how do they get the manpower, like the lifting strength to get people up?
1: Yes, great, great question. So most, well, I wouldn't say most, all of our clients really have the equipment in the home, whether it's a lifting machine, a hoist, it's often even a ceiling hoist. So yes, homes need to be prepared for someone to go home. It's not as simple as You know, we're taking someone home from ICU next week. It's definitely not as simple as that. But I guess with our experience, we know what what resources need to be put in place to make it happen.
0: And these people are becoming functional again?
1: Depends. It really depends. So we've had clients that have been weaned off the ventilator at home that have been decannulated. We have other clients where, you know, they spend their end of life at home that could range from weeks to months to years. We have other clients that, for example, have sustained a C1 spinal injury,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and if they're otherwise healthy, they could live for decades, right? And they want to live, right? And again, we're talking about uh, young adults that are going to school, that are going to university. We are talking about some mid-aged adults, for example, with modern neuron disease that still work in a job, that can use a computer. Again. Picture the alternative, which would be in ICU, or where some ICU teams, depending again on the ICU, might push for end of life, saying, oh, well, this person wouldn't have any quality of life. Let's just stop everything. Well, I argue something very differently here.
0: And it sounds so much more humane. Yeah, and give people a choice.
1: Give people a choice. You know, if somebody doesn't want to live with modern neuron disease with a see one's spinal injury, that's their choice. But if someone does want to live, that is their choice also.
0: And when you don't sedate people automatically, they can be part of that discussion. They get to make their choice. We don't deprive them of their autonomy. And for, in the kind of COVID situation or in this acute respiratory failure, what if we, how would things change from your perspective if we gave people the choice on whether or not they wanted to be in a medically induced coma at the very beginning if that option was available with all the information hey if you, you're choosing now if you want it you're gonna be on a ventilator if you want to be in a medically induced coma this may cause post ICU dementia and this may prolong your time on the ventilator for at least four to six days if not weeks and months this could mean being discharged home versus to an LTAC so how much would that change your field your job and the community as a whole if we gave people a choice and education right away yeah
1: yeah now look it would would be a huge change in paradigm you know a business like intensive care hotline as well as intensive care at home probably shouldn't exist in the first place right i yeah. we just feel a need that is there because of you know again quote-unquote the mess that yeah. critical care is creating know that those businesses shouldn't exist in the first place
0: I know when you and I talked about collaborating I that was my disclaimer if you let if I got to do what I want to do I might take away your business yeah yeah. and you were happy with that
1: (laughs) I'm happy with that because we're just feeling I, I believe we're just feeling yeah we're just feeling the need for the mess that's being created in the first place Unfortunately,
0: we, I interviewed a nurse practitioner that had gone to an LTAC after the ICU. She'd been in an awake and walking ICU. She was really aggressive with mobility, went to an LTAC, and they did not share her values. And she even got in trouble for discharging people, getting people discharged before the 30 days of reimbursement was up. So then the LTACs weren't making as much money. She was getting in trouble for getting people off sedation, moving, decannulated too quick. And so she went elsewhere. She went to a a nursing home and started a respiratory unit there. And these are the very long-term stuck forever, quote unquote, patients. And she took their decannulation rate from like 13% to somewhere in the 60s because she hustled them. She was aggressive. And I've thought about doing that. Like I would love to do that because there is a need, yet it would still always bother me that that need exists because of something that we could reverse.
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. And part of the problem as well is like you, you just talked about, you know, funding for LTAX. You know, part of the problem is also where is the funding going? How is funding be distributed? You know, that's all part of the problem. The other big problem that I see in critical care is this, and you would probably know that as well. ICUs are not having enough senior staff. So you have this huge staff turnover, you have junior staff coming in, they need to be brought up to speed. From my experience it takes years become really proficient in intensive care, whether it's doctors, nurses, RTs, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So you've got this huge staff turnover in ICU and you've got all these junior nurses in ICU and you it takes years to bring them up to speed. So how do you deal with this high acuity in ICU with predominantly junior staff? You know, how can you get them to learn how do you wean a patient off the ventilator efficiently? How, you know, there's all these... Issues. I see it's so complex. You know, we're just scratching the surface here.
0: <laughs> it's true. I think staffing is a huge part of it. When you're running on bare huge. bones, you have time and resources for is to put out fires instead of looking at the big picture, seeing the end from the beginning, being proactive and preventing these complications. And I think if they hired even more techs to do all the things that nurses get consumed with. Nurses could step back and start seeing things. We getting engage in the research more and do things but no we run by bare bones and and then the pandemic hits and we're left with our pants down it's been really yeah. awkward
1: yeah and and it's not only that it's you know the other issue that i can see is again doctors nurses artists you can't become a critical. you know you need to do a 3 year bachelor of nursing and then you go into critical care then you do a postgraduate course or whatever it is so the amount of training that goes for people to even go into the barriers of entry are high. Mm -hmm. And then you've managed to overcome those barriers of entry. Uh, You're just starting. You know, I mean, you and I, we're talking here, we're talking with decades of ICU experience between the two of us, right? So we have probably the bigger picture. So imagine, and I remember this from my early days, I was so overwhelmed. Yeah you know
0: you're just trying to figure out how to work an iv pump
1: exactly exactly
0: exactly so they hire a lot of new grads a lot of people straight out or very new to critical care because they have a fresh perspective they're yeah. not going to jump to sedation right away because they never have done it so it's easier to build a culture when it's starting from scratch rather than trying to erase years yeah. or decades of poor practice
1: so do you think that your unit is the only unit worldwide that's doing what you're doing? Where do you um, sit in all of this?
0: There's a spectrum of compliance with this approach. So you have the A to F bundle, which I think a lot of places are really trying to implement where it's trying to wean back the sedation sooner, it gives vacations and breaks. And I think that's really a good transition. I think the Wake and Walk and ICU in Salt Lake City, Utah, is the only ICU in the whole world that does not start sedation right away and walks people hours after intubation as a standard. Any kind of sedation, any kind of immobility is a very rare exception. And in my years there, I probably have only seen, I don't know, somewhere between five to eight tracheostomies for very specific exceptions, such as like muscular dystrophy, severe ILD, things like that, but they are very rare exceptions, not for your normal respiratory failure.
1: So, so you've, you've got enough data under your belt to go out really to anyone and say, look, this is working. Uh,
0: yeah, and even there's so much research, not from our hospital, showing that decreasing sedation changes outcomes. Mobilizing, early mobility is very subjective. You know, Early might be eight days after intubation, mobility might be passive range of motion, but even those show that there's improvement. So we don't have all the data on all of our patients, but we know through the other research that these things improve it, all the outcomes, and yet it still doesn't quite capture the magnitude of difference that our ICU makes. Yet COVID has been very telling because even within our own system and a multi-hospital system, the length of stay in this hospital is at least six days shorter than all the other ICU icus that are caring for covid patients so this is a unique situation where we have all the same diagnoses all the same disease and in a place geographically close to each other we're taking care of a lot of the same patients as far as comorbidities and health status at a baseline mm-hmm. and our discharge disposition and our length of stay is drastically different than our That's great. down the road
1: yeah No, that's great. And who started this? Like, how did you come up with this? What was the driver?
0: Um, It was Polly Bailey back in the 90s. So she's coming from the same culture, the same environment that you were at, and that we kind of are back in. And she is in episode, I want to say 21. Yep. Episode 21. She tells her story where she was a nurse and she had followed a patient after discharge, mother in her 30s, six months to a year later, struggling to get up the stairs still. After surviving ARDS. And she went back to her medical director, Dr. Klimmer, who does episode two, and said, We're breaking people. We can't do this. We can't let them lay in bed and rot. And he said, Well, there's what else can we do? I mean, they're sick, they're on a ventilator. She said, Let me wake them up and move them. And he said, That's crazy. And yet he trusted her and he let her do it. And she has spent the last almost 30 years dedicating her whole career and really her life to preserving this culture that we they established there. I'm just amazed that. It's not disseminated throughout the whole world, but this isn't the standard because this is so groundbreaking. People, someone called it cutting edge and it kind of made me cringe because this has been going on for over 30 years. It's yeah. cutting edge to me makes it sound like it's new. It's not new, but it is the best. And probably only yeah, the for only sure. that does it to that de- degree and throughout the whole world.
1: So, and what what do you think stops this from becoming mainstream?
0: I think a lot of it's education. I think we have these barriers, these really just mental barriers. We just have automatically married the ventilator with sedation and it's really hard to cut the ties. And I think even the A to F bundle has some difficulties because you start sedation. Then when you wean it back, you're exposing the delirium, which is really laborious to manage. And so it makes it really hard to implement even the A to F bundle. And so I think the approach of not even starting sedation, unless it's absolutely necessary, like open abdomen, tenuous ICP, severe, severe alcohol withdrawal, you know, those exceptions. But as a whole, if you just don't start sedation, they don't get crazy and they don't, they're not so hard to manage. But when you've never seen it, it's hard to believe it. And so I guess that's where my objective of the podcast comes of saying, anyone can do this. This is, this is not just because it's such a special team and these people are immortal. It is because they have the education and the support and the culture in place, but that can be developed anywhere.
1: For sure, for sure.
0: And I hope that yeah. your business goes out of business.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> we we are just, look, we are just really filling in the gaps again because of the mess that ICU is creating.
0: But you're you know, bringing a sense of humanity into victims of this process. And I love it. Very much so, very
1: no, much you're... so. And, and I do believe because you know ICU is so fragmented as well, even though there's a lot of similarities, ICUs are so fragmented. Uh, in the English speaking world as well, you know, I don't think we'll be going out of business anytime soon, unfortunately.
0: No, because change,
1: change, change takes time.
0: But I'm determined to see it in my lifetime. Mm. But, But I think it will be a while, but it's not impossible. Patrick, anything else you would share with the ICU community?
1: Yes, I would like to share one more thing. It is, especially with what's happening at the moment, please ICU professionals, don't forget there's a world outside of ICU. There is, we are very poor in ICU at predicting what does a patient's life look like six weeks down the line, six months down the line, six years down the line. We are so poor. And I think there's very few people that have the perspective from ICU, like I believe I have, but also have the perspective of what does it look like after ICU without, pre, without prematurely saying, oh, this person won't have any quality of life. So let's just stop everything because I wouldn't want to live like that or in that situation. But who am I or who is the ICU community to judge what does quality of life mean? What does it look like? What does it look like for the individual? What does it look like for the family? And don't just make these assumptions in that short window when people are in ICU. Thank you.
0: I think I put a lot of quality... lot of my definition of quality life on physical capacity and then my daughter has a neuromuscular disorder and she may never walk and yet she already is having such a rich quality of life that that has changed my perspective and i i wonder if i would have approached some of those discussions differently so thank you
1: no thank you thank you no been such a pleasure to talk to you and, and next week I'll, I'll invite you to my podcast and I'm really curious to hear more about what you exactly do.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Patrick. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.